Hello, and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more shelf stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome back to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. I am your host, Jason. Thank you so, so much for stopping by for this latest episode of Good Trouble. These series of episodes where I engage in above-the-table conversations in the culture space or different aspects that we I feel we are very important to discuss in the board gaming community. Yes, I use the dirty P word, political, because uh, what we feel is that board gaming is political anyway. Board gaming is personal anyway, and we do so in a spirit of education and compassion. No flame here. So, uh, so I'm your host, Jason. Thank you so, so much for stopping by. Uh, I think I said that again, but sure, why not? Uh, I am my. It is my absolute pleasure to be joined uh, this week. Uh, so uh, this is a guest who has really come on the scene in board gaming and just done a lot in a, in a very short amount of time. Uh, we need data. We need stats. We need people. Um, it's we're not just playing games. These are not just games. We need people who are looking at this from an adult perspective, from a research perspective, and who can bring actual context to what we're talking about. Uh, we're, this is not just about feelings. I think there's a big thing of like you know uh, when we talk about cultural criticism, it's about offending and, and people's feelings. Uh-uh. It is about demographics. It is about people. It is about our communities, what they look like in the actual world and in our gaming community. So I'm going on and on because I want to set this context because I really want to shine a light on the fabulous uh, guest that I have today. She is Tanya Pobeda. She is from X University in Toronto. We will describe uh, what I mean by that moniker in a second, but she is almost done with her PhD. I wish I could call her Dr. Pobeda. Almost. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for for having me. I, I'm a big fan of the show, so thanks so much. This is a huge huge honor for me. I appreciate that. I mean, you've been, you've made the rounds. You've met everybody. You know, you've met you know uh, Eric and Mandy. You've met Sen. You've met Erica. You've met a lot of people, and with more to come. You know, uh, I have a feeling you're going to be uh, showing up on Mick and Starla sometime soon, right? Or, or did you do that already? I haven't. I haven't done that. That would be so amazing. I'm a huge fan they, of. They gotta school. yank you in. What do you, t- <laughs> well, well, yeah, Starla, be- If you're watching, <laughs> that'd be great. That'd be so so great. Get her on the show <laughs> for the, our family plays games, and uh, you know anywhere else that we talk about culture and diversity in yeah. a positive uh, light that tries to move the ball forward. I can't say that enough. This is this is all as much as uh, as much as we try. Uh, we do. We are gonna say some you know serious stuff. We're not gonna hold back. But at the same time, the goal is. More games, more people in the hobby, not less. We're not taking anything away from people. We're not telling people what to do. We're making our case. It's an act of persuasion. So, um, okay. So this is going to be a, a pretty involved episode, the way we've structured it. We've talked about this uh, off camera. So there's going to be uh, multiple sections to this um, episode. Please, let's start off by just introducing yourself, a little bit of your background, how you came into board gaming, yep. and how you came to uh, aim your analytical lens at our hobby. Yeah, so it's actually a really, um, to me, it's a very interesting story. Um, I actually went back to school after almost a a complete career. In um, I started out actually as a reporter, a tech reporter in Toronto covering uh, technology companies, and then made the move to a bunch of multinational uh, communications firms, uh, large-scale firms that helped companies be profitable and get... Uh, get business, expand their markets, expand their markets in Canada and around the world. And my specialty was something called corporate dashboards. Uh, 
And essentially what they were, were, you know, the, the health of your company, you know, how are you addressing your audience? How do your customers feel about you? Um, doing the, the background research, especially for startups that they needed uh, working with incubators to, you know, if you wanted to get a little bit of funding, you got somebody like me to help them go through their business plan and make sure it made sense. And my billable rate, I don't even want to talk about my billable rate, but I worked in, in corporations uh, after that for a long, long time. And I decided to go back to school and did a master's and then decided I liked academia so well that I decided to do a doctoral a PhD program in communication and culture and really looking at culture. Um, and it's quite a broad-based program and it's a really flexible program with York University and X University in Toronto. And you know, I was looking at initially, my previous dissertation topic was about using the um, kind of uh, convergence of VR and AI to help people with workplace harassment and bullying issues. And I went quite far down that road. I had a dissertation proposal, I had a committee, and then I realized- Slides, that's the most important part, you have slides. I have slides. And, and pictures, yes, very I important. I have pictures, and, and you know, I actually made um, chatbots. Uh, there were volumetric VR chatbots that could talk to you, you could talk back to your chatbot, it could respond to you in a pretty interesting way. And, you know, it was meant to give people a way to practice really difficult conversations at work anyway. And then I started to realize and get quite pessimistic about how these tools could be used to help people with things like empathy in the workplace. And there's a big reason for that I won't go into right now, but I decided that there was something much more powerful happening in board games. Um, I personally was a board game enthusiast uh, at any given week before the pandemic. My partner and I were, you know, at friendly local game stores all around Toronto constantly, like four days at least out of the week we were at these stores. And I was watching what was going on in some of the stores and we were buying lots of games and, and engaging with the hobby. And for the last, I would say about three, four years, I've been reading, you know, board game social media, being a member of, of Board Game Geek and really seeing that there was something quite powerful happening in board gaming. So I you know, went to my advisor who's incredibly great and said, hey, listen, I've gone down this road pretty far with VR and AI. I am, I'm now a practitioner. I'm a certified in IBM Watson and all that good stuff. But I think board games are the thing. And if we wanna talk about empathy, something's going on in board games. Mm -hmm. And so I pitched a completely different topic and, you know, it actually added a, a probably a little bit like eight months to my, my PhD. That ain't I've nothing. I've seen people sit on, sit ABD for. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that's, that's Plenty the process. Time. You know, you go through something called comprehensive, <clears throat> you know, in Canada and the U S where you actually read. Um, I read about, I think 60 books. And when you go through that process of really investigating something, you actually start to change your mind because you, you're, you become very well read in a particular topic. And I did that over the course of a year and I realized I'm going the wrong way. Board games are the thing. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to pivot into board games and look at what I saw in terms of the dynamics around gender and race in board gaming. Mm -hmm. And there was something very, very fascinating going on in that sector and in the hobby. And so that's what what um, it took me took me into board gaming, mm -hmm. um, and it was really you know again centered around empathy, right, and representation, and representation. Know? And I think on some level we get into all these individual kerfuffles, and we're going to get into some of the individual stuff. I mean, I, anybody that's paid attention, if you don't pay attention, God bless you. But if you're paying attention, you probably this, that's the, the the audience of the show are people who pay attention. Um, 
we had individual games, you know, uh, some that we've discussed in the show, including like, you know, Frosthaven and Tiny Epic Dungeons. Uh, some we have not discussed. I've intentionally not discussed The Witcher. Uh, that was a big thing also in terms of representation. And there's, you can't discuss everything. I can't discuss everything. I don't want, I would, I would go, I'll have a coronary over here if I discuss everything. But every single one of these um, issues comes down to representation. Who, what does the community look like? What do the games look like? What do, who the, what do the game makers look like? And what is the relationship between these two things? And then we're going to uh, go in a little bit of a different direction. We're going to talk about pushback. So anybody who has raised their voice at all in this space has encountered pushback. So we're going to really drill down. Um, um, Tanya has gotten a lot of pushback that you will, that we will see. I've gotten my own pushback. I've observed some, and we're going to break that down and help people understand it. And you know, maybe in understanding it, we'll be able to navigate it better and, and make some progress here. Uh, and then, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. We'll see how much <laughs> how much uh, the conversation will go from there. So, like, I, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this. So, okay. So, we're going to set the scene, right? We're going to set the scene. Let's let's set the scene in terms of what the community looks like first. And then we can uh, relate it to board games. The thesis here is that, and I don't think it's a radical thesis at all, I, that our board gaming community should like, our board gaming community should look like the community. Yes. <laughs> and that's, you know, and, and I'm American. All I know is America. I know we have a European brothers and sisters who, who watch the show. It's going to look different. So like, you know, everything that we're going to say and Canada, you know, um, uh, tiny from Canada. So like that's going to look different as well. Uh, so everything we're going to say is, uh, you know, relative to the American scene, because that's what I know. However, you know, uh, you know, European gaming culture should look like Europe, you know, Can uh, Canadian gaming culture should look like Canada. I don't think that's a radical thing to say at all. And so, it doesn't. That's right. Point blank. It doesn't. And we have hard numbers to talk about that. So yeah. um, I, I, I sent some slides uh, to Tanya because I, I, I utterly fail at screen share. Uh, <laughs> so I have handed off the reins a little bit. So we uh, so let's talk about um, what does America look like? Um, but here here we go. So what you've got is 60% uh, white. And this is in aggregate. This is right now. This is right now, 2019. Exactly. Uh, you know, you see it right there. This is what America looks like. And again, we're only doing America because I said I know America, but I the, the thesis is our community should our community should look like the community. A hundred percent. And this is what our community looks like right now. Ross, Ross stats: sixty percent white, eighteen point five percent Hispanic. Yeah, uh, re represent. Uh, Twelve point two percent black. Five point six percent Asian, and then you know other uh, races and cultures and ethnicities fill in. 100%. And that, that is a really, really interesting overview. Um, and what's interesting, too, is the, the difficulty with census. So that's right. something that definitely came up when I had done some academic presentations about my research. And what one of the things about statistics is you want to see um, your representative sample should map to your population. And one of the really fascinating things about the research that I've just conducted, and I'll pop this open now too. Um, and again, hopefully you can see it in, when it migrates, sometimes there's a bit of a delay. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting is, you know, the, the first um, kind of overview and the slide that gets a lot of um, maybe consternation and, <laughs> um, and a little bit of pushback uh, is this first slide that I'm, I'm just going to share right now. And it's basically the demography of the board game designers of the top 400 board games. Right. 
And so what you can see just by compare and contrast to Jason, the, the infographic you shared of America, and that in, in, interestingly, Canada's very similar to, mm-hmm. to that, that aggregate. A much larger share of, of Indigenous slash uh, First Nation uh, yes, in Canada. Absolutely. absolutely. But, the, but in terms of the actual demographics, it maps re- it relatively maps okay. Really, yeah. really close. So you know, interestingly, um, in both Canada and the U.S., roughly 50, over 50 percent of the population are women. OK, um, so, you know, when I actually do a compare and contrast to these particular statistics of the top 400 labor pool of people involved in board game designs, comparing it to population statistics. And so interestingly, you know, more than half of both the can- Canadian and U.S. population are women. Mm-hmm. Uh, girls and women. So that's really interesting to me. And so what we see here is a labor market that's quite dramatically skewed toward mm-hmm. a particular type of demography, which is white men at 92.6% of the labor of board game design. So, right. you know, w- you know, I, I would do graphs that compared it to population demography. And you and got you this, uh, just to uh, pause, you got this from the top an analysis of the top 400 games of BGG? Top 400 games, yeah. that's right. And, you know, this kind of follows on from a study that I did in 2018 for analog game studies, where I looked at the top 200 games. And what's really, really interesting, this question comes up a lot, is how have things changed since 2018? And the answer is they have not. Okay. And so one of the things that's really interesting is I've been doing this work for the past three and a half years a little bit more than that, when you count some of the academic publishing that I was doing, um, you know, back in 2017. And what's really, really interesting to me is I actually go back and look at research of the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s. And a lot of the these articles that I see back in the 70s could have been written today. So progress has been very, very slow. We'll talk okay? about that. I think there's I think there's some reasons. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and so this, this kind of demographic skew, just right. as you're saying, this 92.6% of a particular population is, is completely counter to, to population demography. And then when you look at what happens when the product comes out, and I, I wanted to see, okay, who are the designers? And the methodology for the designers, just to backtrack a little bit, is I actually looked at uh, the board game geek listings, the information on the box, and then I researched each designer. And this was an incredibly onerous process that took months. Mm-hmm. And I actually had other coders look at my work and say, even actually coders I brought on board that were antagonistic to this particular research uh, project to say, okay, are your findings any different than mine? And one of the interesting things that happened, this is a little bit of statistics terminology, Cohen's Kappa, which means how close was everyone's conclusions. Mm. And we had a Cohen's Kappa of 97%, which basically means perfect agreement between the coders. And what's fascinating is one of the coders was a little deviated from thinking about someone as, as white um, when I was thinking about somebody as racialized, uh, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, or person of color, when they were not. And we went through a lot of research to kind of figure out what happened with that particular coding error. Um, So this was an incredibly exhaustive and onerous process. And I had to pay for additional coders to help me with that process. That question comes up a ton about, you know, what is my methodology? But the final product, the, the game's cover art itself, also ends up quite dramatically skewed. 
And so what you see with, and again, this is taking, uh, not even taking into account negative representation, which a lot of the feedback I got from the qualitative um, survey that I did for board gamers said, you know, a lot of the representation of women is very sexualized. It's very um, negative. Um, but just from a straight count, 23.2% of the representation, human representation on the covers was, um, was girls or women. And 76.8% were men. And this is uh, the humans. You have other statistics in terms of- I have other humans. statistics, yeah. I basically looked at anything that was an animate object. So if it was fauna, if it was a mystical creature, I counted everything. Aliens, um, dragons. Yeah, and it was, it was uh, nearly 2,000 figures in the top 200 board game uh, geek. And this was a very onerous process. And then when you looked at, at the dimension of race on cover art, 82.5% um, was white presenting and 17.5% was BIPOC, Black Indigenous Person of Color. Mm -hmm. And what's incredibly interesting about this, the statistics that you shared, Jason, is this was a, it was an interesting skew when you see that, you know, a lot of statistics say that uh, BIPOC representation in aggregate in Canada and the U.S. falls anywhere from 23% to 24 or 25%. Uh, in Canada, it's around 26% in aggregate, roughly speaking. So this is way lower than population averages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I shared with, um, with other, uh, in other uh, contexts is I actually did a breakdown of urban um, cities and sort of made the argument that if you you want a big consumer market, what are you doing when you have this kind of skew? And we can talk a little bit more about that in terms of the city breakdowns. Sure. A lot of companies are looking at large centers like Toronto, like New York City, like Los Angeles, like Chicago, like Atlanta, big consumer hubs. And if you are paying me my exorbitant fee as my, at my multinational uh, communications firm, mm -hmm. um, I would tell you, you're going the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the other really interesting thing about all of this is, you know, I have this corporate background. I've worked for some of the, the largest multinationals in the world. In my investigation into board gaming, I've been very surprised um, both by, I think the, one of the challenges that a lot of uh, publishers have right now is they've grown up quite quickly. You know, the market is, is starting to get really big and really, really serious. And I think that the problem that a lot of companies have is they've got some growing pains. And we can talk about that in more detail in a moment. But I think that that is one of my big observations about the market and also investigating mm -hmm. what are some of the, the audience dynamics in board gaming that are maybe causing problems that delimit the growth of this market. So then speaking, uh, so then uh, just, uh, um, I sent you those last two slides, sure. if you could pop those up, because this yep. is a last piece of essential context, and that is the future. So there is a, a, a this is now, right? And so yes. right, um, so what is on the screen right now are percentage distribution of children under 18. So we're looking at years, so white, non-Hispanic men uh, in 20, in 2000, 61% of children were uh, white, non-Hispanic, and then you get to 2010, 54, 20, uh, 2020, 50, and then everything, and you see the Hispanics because, you know, <laughs> uh, 
uh, which makes me proud, makes me happy, uh, going up to 26% in terms of 2020 children. So by by 2020, which is when you know around when we're recording right now, 2021, uh, it is already uh, hitting halfway. And what does this mean? Okay, so um, we're having a little bit of trouble zooming in, but uh, what I wanted to show you on the on the left side over here, this is um, going by year. So we're gonna get 2020. We're we're at 60%. 2030, 2040. By 2045, we're hitting 50%. Uh, you know, uh, white. Just like you know, uh, male, male, female. Uh, they they didn't break down by gender group. They broke down by culture, and that that trend line is going to go up and up. So and and also you know not just like Hispanic races but mixed races. There's a lot of different um, things happening culturally in America. And what we're asking, and what you know Tanya is asking, and again this is hard data. We're asking for the board gaming community to look like our community here in America. Uh, look at no, look like the community in Canada. Look like community in Europe. Look like community in all different other places. That's what we're asking for. These is these hard numbers and comparing the demographics both now and in the future to the demographics uncovered by Tanya. So you can go back to your uh, uh, some of your slides. Sure. Like that compared to what I just saw, there's a mismatch. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and so again, if, if, you know, from a consulting perspective, um, if you were working, if a large publisher was working or a small or a mid-sized publisher was working with a firm that does like I used to do uh, professionally, um, what they would do is an audit. They would basically do a, an investigation into large consumer hubs. Um, you know, a lot of these hobbies tend to skew toward more educated um, customers, um, urbane customers, you know, board gaming, particularly in some of the statistics that I can show with you in a, a, a bit later, you can see that they're, they're often a very educated uh, market. Um, they often, you know, live in suburbs or in larger cities. Um, and so if you were doing this kind of investigation, you can see here, you know, with this particular example, you're going after, let's say, um, you're a publisher and you want a large urban market like New York City uh, right now, today, and this is actually taken from some of the, the same uh, statistics around the U.S. census, which actually skews lower than is reality. Um, you can see that, you know, 57.27% are Black, Indigenous, persons of color in New York City. That's one of the biggest consumer hubs in the world. Um, you know, here in uh, actually in Chicago, it's and it's exactly like Toronto. Toronto has almost ex identical statistics is 50.02 today black indigenous persons of color and 49.9% white. And again, just in very same in Toronto, 49.9% black indigenous person of color and 50.2% white. And, and Jason, you're absolutely right that, you know, here in Canada, demography is, is changing in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's been research studies in Canada that because we have quite restrictive immigration rules, we have a merit-based immigration system, um, which is, which is, I think, personally, extremely draconian, we're actually going to run out of skilled labor mm. uh, in the very near future. We're going to run out of labor because, um, you know, it, we're not growing at the pace we need to, to be economically um, successful. And so that's a really interesting dynamic. And, you know, one of the things that I found in my research, and this is something that got a lot of, of interest and also a little bit of pushback is that there are a lot of studies and analogies in other cultural spheres. And one example that I used 
um, in a in a presentation I gave uh, during my academic conference season, which really got people interested, is the film business has been looking at this. And this incredible study done by Higginbotham, Phil Zeng, and Ulis 2020 actually looked at pre-pandemic box office and said, if you do not have authentically inclusive representation, representation, diversity in your film, and so there's a great analogy here for board gaming, you actually lose 32.2 million in opening weekend if your film costs you $159 million to produce. And over the course of its run, it will lose 80% of its budget because you lack representation, because people can't see themselves in the film. Or if you have, you know, stereotypical offensive representation of women, of BIPOC individuals, of LGBTQ individuals, you're going to lose money. So the idea, and this is kind of my, my, my background coming out, when I would advise clients to look at their, their approach and think about you know, doing that minimal investigation into audience. If you're going after the Canadian market or the US market, you really need to map to demography and understand your audience quite a bit better than I think a lot of publishers might do right now in board gaming. And the film yeah. business is, 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 has been slow to this too. Yeah, and we're talking about like projecting into the future, right? right? I mean, like if you, so what is a board game like thinking about from a board game publisher's perspective, I mean, right now the hobby is still white. Yes. You know, it's still a white male driven hobby. Yeah. And it was, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, you know, when origins had like five people, <laughs> you know, it, all, it was, um, it looked a certain way. And then, so I think it's like, it's almost like a, a general and a war with old maps. That's right? right. That's a great analogy. You know, and it's like, okay, we're, I don't, I don't have access or for whatever reason, I'm kind of like in the, I'm, I'm in the thicket and I, they're just like in, um, you know, selling and, you know, the trends and everything. And, they, and they're kind of like, there's a lag, right? So then it's, that's what we're trying to do from the outside perspective, because we're not publishers, but we're looking at, okay, that was the past. Where are we going? And, and where do we want to go? And, you know, we say we want a more diverse uh, group, you know, Black Lives Matter happened last uh, year. And, you know, all these publishers said, oh, we got it. You know, we have to, you know, make it broader. We have to bring it in. And it's like, well, we're still here and we're still talking. And if publishers have kind of forgotten, not because they're bad, but because they're operating on old, old information. Well, okay. let us help you with our experience and not just like our, our feelings, but our stats. A hundred percent. And, you know, one of the interesting uh, dynamics of sharing my research online has been that I got a lot of, so I've had to do a, a very robust and rigorous process as part of a research ethics board. I have a whole committee I have to report to. And one of the interesting things that happens um, in looking at the demography of the people who actually, I'm just going to pivot to um, some other examples of you know, these types of research studies where, you know, board gaming is not alone. And that's the other thing that I think people maybe misunderstand about, um, you know, this particular critique of board gaming. This is happening in every cultural sphere yeah, uh, right now, every has been one. for years, right? Um, in the film industry, you know, 71.7% of all speaking roles, white. Um, this was an audit done where they, they literally counted, you know, uh, web series, television and, and film it skewed 
overwhelmingly white. And this was done in 2015 to 2016. You know, there's, there's innumerable examples of this 3.5% um, and 15.45% respectively BIPOC and women um, readings assigned in university. Um, so this was a study done and publicized by McGill, but was done in Paris over uh, political science. You know, only 17% of all Wikipedia biographies are about women. That tells you something. It's a very, very interesting statistic. I do a lot of work in Wikipedia as well. So it's not something that's that that we're that board gaming is board gaming is representative of a larger cultural problem that we have specifically in North America and throughout Europe. You know, here's another statistic I found the other day that two thirds of all doctoral students for archaeology are women, um, but only uh, one uh, one third get tenure track positions. This was just another example, and it's it's a systemic issue that we have as a culture. And there's all sorts of fascinating sociological, political, economic reasons for this skew. So board gaming's not alone by any stretch of the imagination. But one of the things I wanted to pivot to is with the online survey I conducted, this was done in late August, 2020, and concluded in October, 2020. And I promoted it on Twitter, BGG and Reddit, but what's interesting is most of the people who participated were diehard board game geek users. And what was super fascinating, it was actually, um, I got 174 written voluminous comments from people who participated in the study. It was overwhelming. It took 35 to 40 minutes to, to complete. It was a long study. And believe me when I say, I haven't even scratched the surface of the data that I have. It is so rich. And, you know, again, just uh, I got people wrote me a book about their experiences <laughs> in board gaming. And there's so many stories to tell. But what was fascinating to me, and this is almost a, a, I actually had popped it into my, my dissertation because it was so fascinating. I got pushback that the the diversity of my sample meant I didn't locate real board gamers. Mm -hmm. So in this case, uh, you know, cis men were 77, so 77 in total, cis women, 175, uh, 175 filled out my survey, trans women, 16, um, non-binary, 31. And the fascinating thing happened, and I, I also got, and this was actually very interesting to me, lower than population averages, but pretty close to population averages in aggregate, okay? Right. So, and I was really disappointed that I didn't get more BIPOC participation because I know it's there on Board Game Geek. But there's all sorts of dynamics as to why people who are BIPOC, people who are LGBTQ might feel more reserved filling out a survey like this. But what's interesting is I got 20%, 20.4% BIPOC participation. And the pushback I received online was, you didn't locate real gamers. Mm -hmm. And that's been a really fascinating finding because what we've got in our social imaginary of games and gaming and board gaming specifically is it's not real unless you're a white man. So, you know, they, they, a lot of people criticized the sample and said, you know, you were, I was recruiting for diversity. So just full disclosure there. But what's fascinating is that social imaginary of real board gamers aren't part of the sample because there's not enough white men in your sample. And the other thing was, it was actually slightly more than the majority that were LGBTQ in orientation, just a little over half. Mm -hmm. And so we, I ended up getting really, really interesting findings. And there's so much more here in terms of, I think something that publishers would be really interested in finding out more about with this 320 um, 
respondents, I found out that they're actually incredibly educated. They're actually, you know, their, their household incomes exceed, you know, $50,000 a year. Other, you know, demographic information that's really, really fascinating about board gamers. But this notion that, you know, you didn't locate real gamers was a really fascinating finding. And I actually collected a lot of the comments I got online because I found that quite a fascinating dynamic about board gaming. And that's a, that's a, uh, an issue that I think pervades a lot of thinking within publishers as well, that right. real board gamers are white men. It's the general white with the old map that, that they were, they yeah. were right. And it tracked demographically and it tracked, you know, I mean, we talk about 2019, I mean, 60% of the country, I mean, we're like going before and also where were the cons? Like, you mean the old cons yeah. were in, you know, the Midwest and, you know, this is where the, 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 we're going through this whole thing with TSR right now, but like TSR is a, you know, um, if you don't know what it is, go ahead and Google. I'm not going to go through it. Um, but the, that began in Wisconsin and Michigan and like the, that heartland type area. So that's where, that's what board gaming looked like and, and role-playing and, and, and hobby gaming looked like, where's it going? You know, one of the, the, the last uh, big convention that was added to the schedule was PAX in Philadelphia. Right. So we're like now we're starting to migrate towards these cities and you gave the stats before of what the cities look like. Exactly. You know, actually, I did a specific uh, analytic on Gen Con and their their demography uh, in Indianapolis is actually very diverse as well. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. I did hear from um, some individuals who were saying, you know, we were just talking about this in, in the context of Gen Con. So there's awareness of this. Right. And I think that, again, it's this idea that so I actually located people who game at least once a week, who board game at least once a week. Um, that was one of the criterias um, for participation in the survey. Um, these are individuals with board game geek profiles. They participate in the form forums. That's how they actually got access to my survey. And what was fascinating is when you look at this kind of breakdown, that the majority were from North America. The majority um, said they were in their 30s and 40s. 60% of the sample identified as women. And that actually takes you just a little over population statistics mm -hmm. where in Canada and the US respectively, I think it's 50.4% are women and 50.5% in the US are women. So slightly more women in the US and slightly more women in, the, in Canada as well. And only 25.3% uh, identified as men. But what's fascinating about that too is really only 35 to 38% of the US population is a white male today. Mm -hmm. So that's another really fascinating finding. And I think that one of the, the misunderstandings, the, the misapprehensions that a lot of publishers and companies going into this market have is that, you know, the white male, the white middle-class male market, the white straight middle-class male market is big. You can't it's alienate not. it. Like if you alienate it, then you're sunk. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really, it's, it's almost like a, 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 like a prisoner's dilemma, a game, uh, a game theory issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I, I actually did something the other day on Twitter where I said, imagine you run a toy store and there is a group of people in this toy store that, you know, kind of stand there and hassle people who don't look like them, stand at the doorway and make it hard for people to enter. But those people who are hassling people are, are, are you know, your best customers. They're your only customers. And what do you do when you're running that company? 
And that's been a really, really difficult problem, I think, for a lot of, uh, of organizations. And this is in every sector where you don't necessarily want to alienate your customer base, but your customer base, you know, in some cases, depending on what's going on in that dynamic, may be delimiting you in terms of your imagination, in terms of your product creation. Mm-hmm. And this is a conversation I used to have, to have to have with a lot of startups where they'd have an imagined audience that wasn't big enough to sustain them. And it was always a really tricky, tough conversation to have with them to say, hey, I know you think you know, but maybe just think about some of these statistics, think about some of these dynamics mm-hmm. in the market, and then come back and, and you know, think about your market strategy in that context. Right. And sometimes it's just you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, because and and, big- yeah, I think there's going to, and we're going we're to get to this in a minute, um, but there's a this idea that like, okay, we're talking about this. And we're talking about publishers getting kind of stuck in that mindset where the white male is centric. We're not saying that anybody's racist. We're not saying that anybody's doing this because of, you know, they want gaming to look a certain way. And we want to um, deconstruct that defense mechanism. We deconstruct that idea and say, it's not about like, you know, what you intend. It's just, you know, ideas get old. Like they, like, like mindsets get stuck. Mindset is your hardest thing to change. And if uh, the, the, um, the customer mindset, the customer approaching mindset has been a certain way for a long time and you make money off of it and that's the that's the paradigm, then yeah, of course you're going to hold on to the paradigm until it's like obvious that it's falling apart. And what we're saying is, A, why wait when you can see the stats coming and you can have like, you know, uh, Tani Pabuda, soon to be Dr. Uh, Pabuda, you're giving you the statistics with all the, you know, the, the whatever, the Cohen's current and <laughs> she'll oh, give yeah. you all that stuff. Um, and number two, there are people uh, who the games that are being generated now yep. are, you know, they, they, they contain some things that are like, oh, this isn't very welcoming to, you know, someone That's like right. me or someone like, you know, uh, my wife, who is a, a black woman or someone who is, you know, kind of interested in kind of and, and appropriating. And that's not an attacking thing. It's just like, you know, I'm seeing something you don't see it. Be, you know, be, it's that's your experience, but I have an experience. Let's try to let's let's work. Let's work together. That's, that's exactly right. And it's, it's about, like you say, uh, Jason, it's about creating a runway for your business. It's about future proofing your business. But the argument that I make, uh, the argument that I make is the future is now Um, it's already happened. And, you know, one example that I use, um, I have used in, in describing this to people who have pushed back or have had questions is, um, you know, one example I use is my partner, and I'm sure he won't mind me uh, using him as an example. I asked his permission. I just uh, I just used my partner. So go ahead, bring him yeah. up. <laughs> so, so one really good example is my partner and, and I, um, we're both white. And my partner is, you know, he's middle-aged, as, as am I, uh, and we're both white. And we live in the suburbs, and we're probably not middle-class people. Uh, because we've had a career change. We got laid off, both of us from a tech company a couple of years ago, and we've actually had to start our careers all over again. But we're pretty representative of kind of my partner, particularly the epicenter of most games companies. And one of the interesting things about my partner is I didn't even realize there was a badge on uh, Board Game Geek. It's the Herculean uh, badge where he's actually amassed so many board games at this point Mm. that we've run out of room. Now, one of the things that used to happen in early tech, and it's an example I use because I worked with a lot of really early tech companies, is, you know, the saturated base. And I would actually argue that the, this epicenter of board gaming is super saturated. You have, you know, whole genres 
of uh, board game shows where it's, you know, uh, men and women often, uh, married couples doing the cull, right? This mm-hmm. has become an entire genre. Um, you know, what do we do with our, our games? You know, everybody mm-hmm. I speak to who's a really avid collector is like, I need to give these games away. I've, we've run out of room. We're, we, there aren't enough Calax bookshelves in the world uh, to, to, you know, ho- house our board game collection. And yeah. so you've got a really super saturated, and that's that's a dynamic in a marketplace, any marketplace, you, you name it, finance, high tech, um, you know, healthcare, um, you know, professional wrestling, like a, they, professional exactly. wrestling is going all over the place. Like they go into India and China because they need new markets for their stuff. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's what a lot of companies that are future proofing their businesses think about. We've got a base that's super saturated. Where do we go now? And I would argue, and this is an argument I will make to any publisher who's willing to sit down and listen to me about this, because this is why I've created this work, is you've got your you've got your epicenter, your beachhead strategy. This is something that we used to talk about in tech. It's a Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm classic, where it's you, you establish your beachhead, but then you need to move out, radiate out from your beachhead. And you have to start bringing more people in to keep your business viable, to future-proof it. And where do you go from that beachhead, that saturated base that you've got? And the companies that can do that well survive and thrive. Those that don't die. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of interesting case studies in tech where companies, you know, took, took the I don't want to, I don't want to leave my base, my saturated base. They're loyal to me. I'm not going to move on. I'm going to stick with them. Those companies don't exist anymore. The companies that pivoted, who radiated out, who politics and like wooed other customers, they survived and thrived and are now giants in the industry. And that's the kind of thinking that I think board gaming really needs because it's a billion, it's a multi-billion dollar business now globally. It's got to start thinking about this. And there are things in this industry, the entire thesis of my dissertation is what is delimiting, delimiting, which is limiting board gaming growth. What are some of the dynamics? And one of them is representation. Just right. Jason, exactly as you say, mm-hmm. representation is a stone in the shoe of the growth of board game industry. Go ahead and pop that that slide back up. We we need to see that pie chart again. Okay. Uh, uh, which one? The, the go ahead and the, the one with the ninety two percent of the designers or whatever it is. That's yeah, that's that has that is the that's what we're looking at. You know, when we talk about. Um, so are, are we, um, is that the, the, the main thing? <laughs> I, don't, I didn't want to short circuit your, uh, no, no, no. And, okay. and, you know, th- that's an other really interesting thing about like the labor pool of mm-hmm. board game design. And there is an interesting dynamic there in terms of who, ma- who gets to make games, who are you tapping to make games? And does that have an impact on how the product ends mm-hmm. up, um, looking and it does to some large extent, that you know, there we actually did a really interesting study, um, myself and Dr. Shelley Jones, around rule books, mm-hmm. and we did a kind of cross-tab, multi-dimensional analysis to say, you know, if 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 a game is designed by a particular homogenous group of people, do they produce a more inclusive result? And we found, for the most part, that that actually it lined up that, you know, rule rule books were more gender inclusive the more diverse the team was that produced them. 
So that's, you know, that's the, that's the interesting thing about the labor pool too. And the other really fascinating dynamic that I am finding in the data is a lot of board games are very recursive, very derivative, tend to use the same uh, mechanisms, tend to use a lot of the same themes. And that is a delimiting factor as well in board mm -hmm. gaming. How many vampires, how many zombies, how much Cthulhu? How much uh, colonialism? How, how much yeah. colonialism? Yeah, I mean, it's, we're getting a lot of the same stuff, yeah. And you know, if it's if it's helpful too, one of the other interesting things that oh, yeah, I this one too. people yeah. find quite shocking and maybe I found it offensive, is you're more likely to see something that doesn't exist on a board game cover. So in this case, I counted the number of aliens, fantastic creatures, you know, imps, orcs, dragons, and I compared it to how many women appear on board game covers. So something that doesn't exist is more likely to appear on a board game cover than, you know, uh, than, a, than a woman. And the other really interesting thing that bothered me a great deal, and I looked at this in terms of a number of different comparisons, but BIPOC women are diminishingly rare. So black indigenous person of color, uh, women, diminishingly rare on board games um, to the point where there's only 35 of them of almost 2000 representations on the board game covers that I analyzed. And there are more horses. There are more birds mm -hmm. than, than BIPOC women. And I found that really upsetting. And so, you know, the, the one thing that I asked the community, these diehard gamers, these members of board game geek, you know, the, there was an interesting uh, comment someone made to me that, board game bros, you know, didn't participate in this, this survey. Well, all of the people that participated almost to a person had a board game geek profile, were actively involved in different forums on board game geek fora. And they overwhelmingly told me in the survey at 84%, that is a really high finding. I used a Likert scare, uh, scale, which is a psychometric measure to say, you know, strongly agree to strongly disagree with gradations in between. And what I got was a lot of passion to a question about whether there was a problem with a lack of equitable race, racial representation in board game artwork. 84% of the people who participated in the survey came back very strongly to say, mm -hmm. yes, I have a problem with this. And the other thing, again, you know, as a market researcher, these kinds of, of numbers would trouble me greatly if I were running a, a board game company. 83.6% said yes there was a lack of equitable gender representation in board game artwork. And did I ever hear a lot of stories from people saying, this prevents me from coming to the table. I don't like when I see over-sexualized imagery of women because I don't know if I'm gonna be safe in that context. I don't like to see, overwhelmingly people told me, this really negative representation of indigenous people, of black people, of people of color in board gaming. I don't know if I'm gonna be safe at that table. So these are all various factors, barriers. Um, Gil Hova wrote this amazing blog article called Invisible Ropes that keep people from gaming. And it was a really thoughtful piece about what are some of the barriers to entry. And overwhelmingly, he shared anecdotally that that representation issue was something that really got in the way of his significant other wanting to play board games because they're like, ooh, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to play. I don't like that theme. I don't like that mechanism. Um, I don't like that artwork. So these are all things that really are delimiting board game growth. Mm -hmm. And if, if people leave with no other takeaway, it's that there's a, a significant challenge. You know, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm just talking to the money because that's what I used to do 
when I worked corporately is if you're investing in a board game company, if you're, you're, you're putting real money out there to invest in, in your, your next move, you really have to look at audience. You really have to look at demography and you have to understand what some of the, the, the appetite and dynamics are to grow your base. You can't just stick to one tiny splice and it is quite tiny of demography, which is, which is white, white middle-class straight males. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you got to end on the money, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, again, it, because to me coming to this sector, like I have so many others, it was genuinely perplexing. It's flummoxing. Um, it's not, it's maladaptive behavior um, from a, from a strictly financial point of view. Um, and again, this is not really a cultural commentary so much as it is a financial or fiscal management issue. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is a huge, huge risk for companies who are really marketing to that saturated base. How many more Kickstarters can you run that are, you know, two hundred dollars, you know, miniature heavy? Where is your saturated base going to keep those items in their already mm-hmm. fully saturated collections? Like, you know, it, it it that's going to dry up at some point, and you have to start thinking differently. Mm-hmm. And so that is going to do it for part one of my conversation with Tanya Pobeda. Thank you so much to her for doing that. Excellent work with demographics, uh, really thorough, really detail-oriented, because I think it's very valuable that we set the scene and let people know exactly what we're talking about in terms of context, uh, the board gaming community, the covers, and the designers are of a certain demographic, and there is a mismatch, and what we are trying to do here in our uh, or, or larger project, people who are you know active in the work that I'm doing on this channel and other work uh, like Tanya and so many, many others out there. What we're trying to do is to resolve that mismatch, help the board gaming community and the people making the games look like and resonate with the larger community or different communities that are around the world that are playing the games. Part two is going to be about pushback. You know, not everybody is going to agree with that perspective and they have their uh, different points of articulation, which we are going to get into in the next episode. So until next time, for listeners of the One Stop Co-op Shop, we will see you at the next stop. And for watchers on Shelf Stories, if you can change your mind, you can change your world. Later, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop. Or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list.